Welcome to ACME Talks and Live Events. You are listening to a podcast from the Australian Centre for the Moving Image. This talk has been recorded in front of a live studio audience. This podcast is an audio recording of a live event. It may reference visual material that cannot be represented in this recording. It may also contain strong language and adult themes, which may not be suitable for younger audiences. And the opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of ACME. Hello, everyone. Uh, my name is Sean Larkin. I'm a program producer here at ACME. Uh, before we begin tonight, I'd like to acknowledge that we're gathered on the traditional land of the Wurundjeri people and to pay my respects to their elders of the Kulin Nation, both past and present. Uh, now I'd like to welcome you all this, to this evening's Perspectives on China Now screening and talk. Uh, this event is part of our broader China Up Close program, a program which explores the influence of Chinese moving image art and cinema through a rich program of exhibitions, talks, live events and film. Uh, so far in the Perspectives series, we've taken a look at art, activism and dissent with the screening and talk uh, of the documentary Ai Weiwei Never Sorry uh, and explored Chinese modernity with a panel discussion and screening of A Touch of Sin. Tonight, though, I'm delighted to introduce Dr. Dan Edwards, who will be leading us through the history of the Wuxia tradition in Chinese film, before a screening of Wong Kar Wai's beautiful epic masterpiece, The Grandmaster. Uh, just a little bit about Dan. Uh, he's a writer, journalist, and academic, and currently teaches Asian cinema and media at Melbourne University. He recently completed his PhD on China's independent documentary movement at Monash, and his first book, titled Chinese Independent Documentary, Alternative Visions, Alternative Publics, uh, will be published later this year in May. Uh, Dan lived in Beijing from 2007 to 2011, where he was the web editor for The Beijinger and the China correspondent for New Matilda. Uh, he's a regular contributor to national arts magazine Real Time, and his work has appeared in The Age, The Sydney Morning Herald, Crikey, The Diplomat, Inside Film, Screen Hub, Senses of Cinema, Metro Magazine, Time Out Beijing, and China Today. On top of that, Dan has also curated the Street Level Visions program of Chinese documentaries for the 2012 Melbourne International Film Festival. Uh, he'll be taking a few questions at the end of his talk, so if you have any questions, just hold on to those until the end. Uh, and there will be a couple of minutes between the talk and the screening for everybody to move back a bit, because we will be uh, broadening the screen in full widescreen. So if you wanted to do that, be sure to get up and move a bit further back to take it all in. Uh, but for now, please join me in welcoming Dr. Dan Edwards. Good evening, everyone. Thanks for that... Uh Wonderful introduction, Sean. Can we have the um, PowerPoint up on the screen? Okay, um, as Sean mentioned, my name is Dan Edwards, and tonight, um, before the, screen, uh, the viewing of The Grandmaster, I'll be giving a short talk about the wuxia genre, of which The Grandmaster is somewhat loosely an example. So first of all tonight, um, I'll talk a little bit about what we mean by this term, wuxia, and some of the ideas and generic tropes that are associated with the term. We'll talk a little bit about wuxia's origins in Chinese literature, and then how this literary tradition has fed into Chinese cinema, evolving and mutating over time, and producing cinematic subgenres like the Hong Kong kung fu movie. 
And finally, we'll look at Wuxia in relation to Wong Kar Wai's work, considering how he has both uh, evoked and paid homage to the genre and also reinvented it uh, in light of his own thematic concerns in two Wuxia films that he made roughly 20 years apart, uh, the first one being 1994's Ashes of Time and, of course, his most recent work, uh, The Grandmaster. And as Sean mentioned, um, if we've got time at the end, I'd be very happy to take any questions uh, from the audience that you might have. We'll try to keep this on the snappy side, as I'm sure you're all keen to get in tonight's main event, which is, of course, The Grandmaster. All right, so let me just switch my remote on. Let's start with uh, some basic questions. What do we mean by this term, wuxia? In terms of Chinese culture, this term um, is actually thought to be pretty recent. Uh, it's thought to originate from the late Qing dynasty, so sometime in the late 19th century. But of course, the genre that it refers to has much deeper and longer historical roots in Chinese culture. Now, this term, wuxia, comprises two Chinese characters, which you can see uh, up on the screen there. The first of these characters is wu, which means military or martial. The second uh, character, xia, is a little bit harder to kind of define precisely in English, but it refers to a person or a code representing uh, honourable or kind of chivalrous values. So it's not too dissimilar to our concept um, of chivalry in you know, legends like the Knights of the Round Table, for example, in Western culture. Um, there are also some similarities with something like the Samurai Code in Japan, uh, or indeed the personal code of honour that we often see evoked in American Westerns. So taken together, these two characters, wuxia, means a martial arts uh, code of chivalry or a martial arts hero. So somebody who kind of embodies this uh, martial arts code. But more generally, this term wuxia has come to refer to the martial arts genre in general, in both its literary and cinematic uh, manifestations. Now linked to this term wuxia is the concept of jianghu, which again is a term comprised of two Chinese characters, uh, literally meaning rivers, in the case of jiang, and lakes for hu. But taken together, Jianghu describes the rather kind of anarchic world um, that martial arts heroes inhabit. So it comprises not only these martial arts heroes and the various schools of martial arts that they practice, but also rootless types um, that also inhabit uh, this world, like thieves and beggars, uh, priests, monks, healers and mystics, landless peasants, uh, and also triads and other kind of secret and criminal societies. So this term, Jianghu, has somewhat low-life connotations lying outside the law. But it's also very much a world with its own kind of codes of honour and standards of behaviour. So you're beginning to get the picture here. Uh, these wuxia stories are generally stories of lone individuals, highly skilled in martial arts, living according to their own codes of honour, who wander in this world of Jianghu, uh, engaging in martial arts duels, sorting out instances of injustice, and also encountering all kinds of strange and often kind of semi-mystical characters um, as they go about their adventures. So where do these stories come from? 
Although Wuxia tales often kind of stray into the realm of the fantastical, they do actually have some historical grounding, uh, which is why the stories very often have actual, albeit usually highly, highly fictionalised, ancient historical settings. So I'm sure you're all familiar with, um, you've probably all seen uh, various examples of the Wuxia film genre, and very often these films will start with a voiceover or a title card that sets the story in a particular uh, real historical period. Whether what we see on screen then resembles much, uh, you know, of the reality of that period is another question, of course. So these, these tales are often have some historical grounding, and they, often, they actually have their uh, origins in some of the ancient histories in China, ancient written histories, particularly uh, a vast work called The Records of the Grand Historian by this gentleman uh, that we can see up above my head on screen. Soma Qian uh, was writing about 100 years BC, and uh, he's thought to be the author of uh, Records of the Grand Historian, although there is some debate about whether he wrote all of it. Now, this work, The Records of the Grand Historian, details around 2,500 years of Chinese history. So it's quite humbling to realise that 100 years before uh, the time of Christ, there was already this work detailing 2,500 years of Chinese history. Um, so it covers the period roughly 2,600 years uh, before what we would call the time of Christ, up until um, about 100 years BC. Now, in this epic work, Sir Ma Qian, um, amongst many other kind of characters and incidents that the, grand, that the uh, epic tale kind of covers, he details the adventures of the five notable assassins during the so-called Warring States period in ancient China. And this period covered from around about 480 BC up to about 221 BC. Uh, and it was a period where there were various states at war, as the name suggests, uh, until 221 BC, when much of what we now call uh, China was unified under um, basically one state conquered all the others. And the person who brought about that unification is often referred to now as China's first emperor. He was a gentleman called Qin Shi Huang, uh, who headed the state of Qin. Now, Qin Shi Huang's tomb, um, when he died, was guarded by vast uh, terracotta army, which was unearthed in the mid-1970s. Um, and as many of you would be aware, some of you may have actually seen it, is now a major tourist attraction just outside the uh, present-day city of Xi'an. Now, during this Warring States period, uh, which is talked about in records of the Grand Historian, these five notable assassins worked for various different leaders of the different Warring States. Um, and uh, their exploits, as detailed in Sir Ma Qian's work, continue to be dramatised in many Wuxia films uh, today. An example many of you would be familiar with uh, is Zhang Yimou's 2002 film, Hero, which was a hit all around the world. And uh, that dramatises an incident in one of these assassins actually tried to assassinate the first emperor. Many other famous Wuxia tales uh, were penned, literary tales, were penned during the Tang and Ming dynasties, uh, which the Tang lasted from the 7th to the 10th centuries, and the Ming dynasty, a relatively recent one, uh, from the 14th to the 17th centuries. Um, tales from the early Ming period include the classic novels Romance of the Three Kingdoms and Water Margin, uh, both of which remain very well-known uh, literary classics in China today. However, uh, again, these tales which were written at this time were generally set in much earlier periods. So they weren't necessarily 
uh, kind of talking about the periods in which they were written. Now, like the tales of the five assassins in records of the Grand Historian, many of these stories uh, from the Ming Dynasty and other periods um, were derived from historical events and historical personages. And they were certainly based on real martial arts. As we know, martial arts are, are a real form of um, kind of exercise and discipline. But the practitioners in these literary tales had often reached uh, levels of skill with their martial arts that were at kind of superhuman or even supernatural levels, um, often gaining the ability even to control nature and the elements itself uh, during their battles. Another interesting aspect of uh, wuxia literature is that it's a popular literary tradition rather than an elite one. The figure of the lone wandering wuxia hero, often of uh, humble origins, with his or her emphasis on individual skills and achievements and individualised codes of honour and frequently discontent with existing social conditions, conflicted with Confucian values, uh, which, which generally emphasise family structures, respect for social hierarchies and, of course, social harmony. In fact, Wuxia tales, because of this, uh, have been regarded with suspicion by a pretty broad range of Chinese rulers and regimes at different times. Um, they were banned, Wuxia as a literary genre was banned, for example, at various stages of both the Ming and Qing dynasties. And there was a crackdown on Wuxia films in the Republic of China during the 1930s. The communists regarded Wuxia as a feudal tradition and the genre uh, virtually disappeared from the mainland after 1949 until Hong Kong influences started kind of seeping back over the border in the 1980s. Now, despite this uh, repression of the genre on the mainland and also to an extent in Taiwan after the Chinese Civil War ended in 1949, Wuxia popular literature enjoyed something of a renaissance in the British colony of Hong Kong from the 1950s up until about the 1980s. These modern Wuxia tales were usually published in serialised form, um, often as cheap uh, paperback novels, and also, especially in Hong Kong, as newspaper serials. Very often they appeared initially as newspaper serials and then would be uh, turned into novels. And those of you who are familiar with uh, Wong Kar Wai's film um, In the Mood for Love from 2000 may remember that the Tony Leung character in that kind of aspires to become one of these newspaper uh, martial arts writers. Now, the most popular uh, of these modern writers in, during this kind of Hong Kong renaissance was the legendary uh, Louis Cha, who is better known by his pen name of Jin Yong, and uh, he's right above my head up the top there. Now, um, Cha was a famous newspaper man in Hong Kong. He founded uh, Ming Pao, which is one of, the, one of Hong Kong's best-known daily newspapers, and he was actually the editor-in-chief of that paper for many years. While being the editor-in-chief, he also <laughs> penned 15 martial arts serials between the mid-50s and 1972. Uh, he must have been a very busy man. Um, and all of his tales uh, in the newspaper were later published as novels, and all of these novels now enjoy canonical status throughout Greater China. Uh, these stories are very, very well known in contemporary China. 
One of these, in fact, one of uh, Jin Yong's tales, The Legend of the Condor Heroes, was to provide inspiration for Wong Kar Wai's first wuxia film, uh, Ashes of Time, in 1994. The film doesn't really follow the story um, of Condor Heroes, but several of the characters from uh, the novel are um, in the film. So we kind of base some of the characters um, on, on characters from the novel. Uh, the Legend of the Condor Heroes has actually been uh, made into various other films and TV series as well, and many other of Jin Yong's um, works have been made uh, both as films and television series in Hong Kong uh, over the years. We can actually see on screen there, um, that's a poster for a television version of Legend of the Condor Heroes that was made in Hong Kong. So that brings me to wuxia as a cinematic genre. As a kind of popular uh, and prominent literary genre in China, it was perhaps inevitable that filmmakers would turn to the genre as a commercial, commercial studio system uh, solidified around Shanghai in the mid-1920s. And there was also a very active uh, domestic film-going market in Shanghai and other East Coast urban centres during this period. Now, unfortunately, very few of these very early wuxia films have actually survived. Like a lot of, chi a lot of China's early cinematic heritage, uh, the films have unfortunately been lost. But in general, we do know that they were based mainly on ancient tales and featured swordplay very heavily. Many of them were also serialised for the screen. So that is, the stories played out over multiple films, which were often made over quite a prolonged period. The most famous of these film series made at, the, uh, at this time was The Burning of the Red Lotus Temple uh, by Zhang Shi Chuan. Uh, it was made between 1928 and 1931, and it comprised 16 feature-length parts. So it was extremely long. Um, unfortunately, none of this film or films has survived. Uh, so we don't know a lot about what a lot of the film looks like. There are some stills, um, but the film itself has not survived. In 1931, however, uh, the ruling Guomindang, or Nationalist Party, um, that was in control of China at that time, instituted a fairly restrictive censorship regime over Chinese cinema, and they actually banned the making of wuxia films on the mainland. It wasn't until the end of the Chinese Civil War in 1949 that the genre started to be revived, and this took place uh, mainly in the British colony of Hong Kong. Now, as many of you would be aware, 1949 really represents a turning point in the history of Chinese cinema, and indeed of China generally. That year, Mao declared the founding of the People's Republic in Beijing, and the last of Chiang Kai-shek's nationalist forces uh, were, fled the mainland and were expelled to the island of Taiwan, where they have maintained the last kind of vestiges of the Republic of China to this day. Now, some of China's vibrant film community remained in the mainland after the communist victory uh, to participate in the building of socialist China. And many of them, unfortunately, paid with their lives for this decision during the Cultural Revolution, when the old uh, Shanghai film community was very heavily persecuted. It, this was in the 1960s. The communists quite quickly uh, nationalised all the film studios and instituted a policy of socialist realism, 
um, films that were designed to kind of educate the masses uh, about socialist ideals and inspire a kind of spirit of sacrifice and subservience to the party. Wuxia was condemned as a vestige of uh, feudal ideas and storytelling. Now, while some film personnel did remain in mainland China, many uh, filmmakers and other film personnel despaired of the rigid system that was set up uh, under Mao and also the very repressive conditions that initially existed in Taiwan uh, in the 50s under the nationalists. So much of the film industry ended up in the British colony of Hong Kong. And there, the vestiges of the Shanghai film industry continued making films, mostly in Mandarin at this time, that often evoked a very kind of nostalgic and somewhat mystical view of a lost Chinese motherland, which was now uh, cut off from much of the rest of the world. Now, one member of the 1949 community, refugee community, that ended up in Hong Kong at this time was this gentleman above my head, uh, Hu Jinchuan, <coughs> who later, uh, who became better known as King Hu, one of the towering figures in the Wuxia cinematic canon. Now, Hu was only in his teens when he fled to Hong Kong in 1949, where he ended up working for the Shaw Brothers, uh, who ran the biggest and the most active film studio in Hong Kong at this time. Now, in 1966, Hu directed a film that remains one of the best-known Wuxia films to this day, casting the ballet dancer Zhang Peipei as a swordswoman who engages in a series of graceful, dance-like, fantastical fights in a mythical China populated by Wuxia heroes exhibiting uh, fantastical, almost magical powers. And we can see Zhang Peipei uh, at the bottom of the screen there doing her stuff. This film, Come Drink With Me, was a massive hit in 1966 and made Zhang Peipei one of the biggest stars in Hong Kong of the 1960s uh, and her stardom extended well into the 1970s. She still carried the aura of that time in uh, 2000 when Ang Lee cast her as Jade Fox in Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, which is really the film that took uh, the wuxia genre to multiplex audiences in the West. Now, King Hu followed up the success of this film, Come Drink With Me, with the equally canonical uh, Dragon Gate Inn in 1967. And then in 1971, he made the epic Touch of Zen, uh, a film that took the kind of mythical, fantastical elements of Wuxia to new heights, with a story that's very kind of rich in kind of Buddhist symbolism. But while King Hu was making these films in the late 60s and very early 70s, a new variant of the Wuxia cinematic tradition was evolving in Hong Kong, uh, embodied very much in the figure of this man in the top corner there, who I'm sure needs no introduction, Bruce Lee. As we've seen, Wuxia tales are, have traditionally been set in a heavily mythologised ancient China, often set around 2,000 years ago. They often employ many kind of fantastical elements, uh, relied very heavily on swordplay, and often, especially in the case of King Hu's films, featured tales of thwarted romantic love. By the late 1960s, however, a generation was coming of age in Hong Kong that had grown up inside the highly urbanised colony. They had little, or in some cases, no experience of mainland China, and in many cases had very little time for the kind of mythical, romanticised visions of an ancient Chinese homeland that we see in many Wuxia films. 
especially in the late 1960s. A new, uh, distinctly Hong Kong or Cantonese variant of the genre that became generically known as Kung Fu began developing in the early very early 1970s. And many of these films had an altogether grittier tone. They often relied on fistfights rather than swordplay. They often fetishised the kind of hard, muscular male body, uh, as we can see with this picture of Bruce Lee up on screen. They often depicted contemporary problems like class conflict and racism. And crucially, they very often had contemporary settings. So they were quite different uh, to these kind of earlier swordplay epics. Now, as we know, Bruce Lee's career was unfortunately very short-lived. Um, he died very shortly after the making of that film in 1973 at age 32. But the contemporary action genre that he played a very important role in kick-starting became a central part of Hong Kong filmmaking as it entered its boom period from about the late 1970s up until the mid-1990s. Uh, later stars like Jackie Chan, who we can see just below Bruce up there, uh, introduced important variations to the Kung Fu tradition. And there were many other stars, uh, of course, in Hong Kong throughout this period within the Kung Fu genre. Uh, we can see in the corner there, Jimmy Wang Yu, who was another big uh, star of the 1970s, taking out someone in front of the Sydney Opera House uh, in a very famous Australian Hong Kong co-production from the mid-70s called The Man from Hong Kong. And of course, in the middle there is Jet Li, who was a huge star in the early 90s and remains very well known today. Um, there were also subgenres like the action uh, gunplay films of John Woo, uh, which came to the fore in the 1980s and 90s. Films like Hard Boiled and A Better Tomorrow, which featured these you know, incredibly choreographed uh, gunplay sequences, which were also quite influenced by the wuxia genre. Which brings us around to Wong Kar Wai, uh, one of the key figures in the Hong Kong cinema of the 1990s, especially as it became known uh, in the West. Now, one of the fascinating things about Wong Kar Wai, I think, is that he is at once such an international and quintessentially Hong Kong filmmaker. His films very much partake of an international art house tradition, especially as it evolved in post-war Europe in films by filmmakers like Antonioni uh, and Goddard and so on. Yet, in a strange way, many of his works are also genre films. He was developed and nurtured within Hong Kong's highly commercial and vibrant industry of the 1980s and 90s. Yet, in many ways, he deliberately flaunts commercial imperatives. As Stephen Teo wrote in his 2005 book about the director, quote, Wong's films come out of the industrial, uh, capitalist industrial complex supporting mainstream Hong Kong cinema. But his films resist the mainstream. Importantly, I think, also, Wong is a child of the mainland diaspora. He was actually born in Shanghai, and his family moved to Hong Kong when he was aged five. And uh, he grew up in the displaced Shanghai community in Hong Kong, which he depicts in such a kind of beautiful and dreamlike fashion in his 2000 classic, In the Mood for Love. It's significant then, I think, that Wong's first stab at the wuxia genre, his 1994 film, Ashes of Time, in that film, he favoured the more kind of restrained, philosophical approach of the post-war diaspora directors like King Hu, over the more kind of frenetic, contemporary set 
kung fu films that we more readily associate with Hong Kong. Now, having said that, Wong's work, I think, can also be read as a response to contemporary currents in Hong Kong cinema. In the early 90s, Wu Xia was enjoying yet another revival of popularity in Hong Kong, as the famous Hong Kong director and producer Choi Hark churned out three swordsman films uh, between 92 and 1993. Like many Hong Kong films in this period, they were made very quickly. Now, the second of the swordsman films features a character played by Bridget Lin, who was a huge megastar at this time. And this character had such mastery of the elements that he, she, could actually change gender, which is a pretty handy thing to be able to do. Wong Kar-wai directly referenced this character in his own film, Ashes of Time, uh, with a character, or two characters, a brother and a sister, both of whom were played by Bridget Lin. And they visit the main narrator at different points, and the narrator eventually concludes that this brother and sister are in fact the same character, kind of split, or the same person, split between two different personalities. Now, as was often the case in the halcyon days of Hong Kong cinema's peak before the 97 handover to China, Wong Kar-wai's Ashes of Time was both a homage to and a deconstruction of the genre that it was working in. Perversely, for example, Wong Kar-wai resisted including many fight scenes in the film, which were, you know, as we all know, are a staple of the genre. He also rendered his swordsmen as rather swordsmen and women as rather melancholic, rather hopeless types who are uh, perpetually seen to be lost in their own dreams and memories of lost romantic love. Now, Wong Kar-wai's second stab at the wuxia genre, the Grandmaster, took many years to make. Uh, it was initially announced in 2002 and didn't start shooting until 2010. Uh, and it was finally released in 2013, just a couple of years ago. Now, once again, I think this film shows Wong to be a filmmaker finally attuned to the broader cultural developments in Hong Kong and Greater China. It tells the story of Ip Man, the real-life uh, martial arts master who, among other things, was Bruce Lee's early mentor. When you can actually see a picture of Ip, the real-life Ip Man uh, up on screen there with a very young Bruce. Uh, that picture was taken in Hong Kong in the 1960s. Now, Ip Man, this figure, this historical figure, has become rather central to the wuxia genre over the past decade. Uh, and there's been a whole string of kind of films and TV programs made about him or featuring him as a character. Most famously, Raymond Wong's Ip Man in 2008 and Ip Man 2 in 2010, made Donnie Yen a major star across Asia. Herman Yao also made two films about the master, uh, The Untold Story in 2010, and in 2013, Ip Man, The Final Fight. In 2008, Ip Man featured in a mainland TV series called The Legend of Bruce Lee. And then he had his own series, also made in the mainland, uh, in 2013, which was imaginatively called... Ip Man. So the Grandmaster um, reflects not only this long string of films and TV series which have been made about this historical figure, it also reflects, I think, a shift in the centre of gravity in Chinese filmmaking that has occurred over the past 15 years or so, uh, away from Hong Kong and back towards the Chinese mainland. 
The film is mainly set in the mainland, uh, in contrast to most of Wong Kar Wai's other work, which is, as we know, set in Hong Kong. And, in, um, and the film is also sorry, focused on prominent contemporary cinematic themes of Chinese nationalism and the struggle for unity, which we see in a lot of films coming out of China over the last couple of years. Although these themes are more subtly kind of explored in Wong Kar Wai's films than in Raymond Wong's better known Ip Man series. But amongst all this, um, I think we can still see Wong Kar Wai's recurring thematic concerns with unfulfilled romantic love and repressed desire. And also this kind of melancholy rumination on the attraction and potentially paralyzing effects of memory. Now, some have seen his evocation of these recurring themes as Wong Kar Wai treading water or simply retracing grounds that he already explored in the 1990s. Others have simply seen the Grandmaster as uh, the latest chapter in his exploration of these themes. So I'll leave it up to you to judge after you've watched the film tonight. But however you respond to it, uh, the Grandmaster, I think, illustrates not only the way that Wong Kar Wai is always able to weave his own thematic concerns into even his most genre-driven films, but also the durability of the wuxia genre itself, uh, as the genre kind of endlessly mutates and is endlessly reinvented according to the needs of the present. So I hope this talk, which is really uh, just a snapshot of um, the wuxia genre, there's a lot more I could say, but I, helped, I hope this talk has helped bring some context to Wong Kar Wai's latest film uh, and also the rich, long-standing tradition of the genre of which this film partakes, albeit in Wong's own unique particular style. Thanks very much for your attention. Um, I'd be happy to take any questions you might have before we get stuck into the film tonight. Thanks very much. You have been listening to an Acme podcast. For more recordings of talks and live events, go to Acme Channel and the Acme website.